Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 106 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss any of the big-name guests that I've got lined up for you, with new VRP Rocks episodes dropping every single Monday. And I've got some great names between now and Christmas heading your way too, including a member of the police, a man who's worked with, well, pretty much everyone from Jeff Beck to Mick Jagger to The Who and Toto and David Coverdale and, well, the list goes on. I've also got a songwriter whose songs have sold more than 500 million copies. He's worked with Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Kiss, Joan Jett, Alice Cooper and many more. Plus, I've got loads of other fantastic guests too coming, so make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks so you don't miss a single episode. Anyway, today's guest then. It's another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, inducted with his band back in 2013. He spent seven years in the group as they released four platinum-selling records in the US and a string of classic rock staples before being ousted from the group in the early 80s. And we get into all that too. I'm talking about drummer with heart, Mike DeRosier. Now, his tenure with the band was the classic lineup of Anne and Nancy Wilson, Steve Fossen, and Roger Fisher. It spanned from the 70s to the early 80s, and it witnessed the creation of timeless albums like Dreamboat Annie and Little Queen and Dog and Butterfly. He provided the backbeat to hits like Barracuda and Crazy on You and Straight On and Tell It Like It Is and Magic Man as well. If you're a Heart fan, then quickly at this point, please scroll back to episode 21 of VRP Rocks and you'll be able to hear, well, Mike's former and current bandmate, Steve Fossen. Again, loads of cool stories that he tells in there. Check out episode 21. And while that's going on, stop at some of the other incredible episodes that I've done as well over the last three years. Loads of rock royalty from all sorts of genres too. If they found fame in the 60s, 70s or 80s, then I'm all over it. We've got hard rockers and prog rockers and punk guys. We've got metal guys. We've got AOR, folk rock, all types of rock stars interviewed. There's Brits and Americans, Canadians, Australians, Dutch rock stars, Germans, Swedish, Finnish, uh, lead singers, guitarists, drummers, bass players, keyboard players, flautists as well yes Jethro Tull's Ian Anderson and Focus's Tice Van Leer are in there we've got songwriters and so many more as well just scroll back through the VRP catalogue and check them all out oh and uh, while I'm doing the housework a quick reminder to check out VRP Rocks on YouTube as well it's another growing vibrant classic rock community on there always a lot of debate as well as I post a classic rock poll every single day which gets thousands of votes loads of discussion that follows just go to YouTube and search for VRP Rocks then hit the subscribe button to join in with all the fun completely for free and you'll get uh, to see all the videos of these legendary rockers as well that i interview so just check all that out anyway back to mike derosia then we talk about how he joined the band what it was like in the group in those early days the unusual situation of having to record an album in a matter of days just to fulfill a contractual obligation we talk about the writing of barracuda the growing tensions within the band and the reason for him leaving we talk about the strange rock hall in too. Plus, we hear about his work with Barry Goodrow and Brad Delp from Boston in their band Orion Hunter and with his work alongside Richard Marks too. And then we get on to what he's doing now, working with his old heart bandmate Steve Fossen. So there's loads to get through, so let's do it. Please enjoy this chat with Hearts, Mike DeRosia. Mike, those early days in Canada, um, the band had moved there to, to avoid the draft and, and things like that, but uh, you joined them when they were there. So how did all that come about? Well, I was uh, I was working at a, a place called Phase Linear. We made amplifiers, and uh, I was playing with some guys, but we had sort of stopped 
sort of broken up. And, and uh, so I was at a lunch break. I was chatting with some people that I worked with. And I was tapping on my, on my bench that I used to assemble stuff on, as I would do that sometimes at, at lunchtime. And so we were just talking about music and bands. And, and they said, oh, yeah, we got these, we got these friends uh, in a band called Heart that uh, we said they're looking for a drummer. So maybe you want to go talk to them. So they were playing at a club close to my house. And I went up and talked to Steve and Mike Fisher, Roger's brother. I talked to a couple of the bandmates. And uh, they, um, they all came down to my folks' house and piled in my bedroom. And I, I played for them for 10 or 15 minutes. And, and they said, hey, you want to come up to Vancouver and, and do a little recording with us? So, yeah. And that was kind of the beginning of the whole thing. As easy as that, eh? Uh, in those early days, like you said, you saw them in a club and it was almost kind of, you'd call it residencies nowadays. You'd play there for like a week or something on end. And that was really how you honed the material and the sound and everything like that, wasn't it? What was life like in the band amongst all that back then? Well, I mean, that's pretty much what everybody did. I mean, that was the one of the stepping stones of what most bands would do if they had a, a desire to, to do originals. They would sneak in a few originals towards the end of the night, maybe the last set yeah. when you're doing three or four sets of music. And, you know, by then people had a few cocktails and they, they're, they're willing to accept you indulging yourself in some originals, I guess. And, uh, that's what, that's when we did it. We kind of s- slipped in a few originals towards the end of the night and, uh, people seemed to take to them. And, uh, then when our record came out, it was kind of required that we know uh, for many reasons why we played those songs in the set, but, but it's a hard process. Well, not a, I don't know how a lot of bands do it, honestly. The way the business has changed, the yeah. whole record company scene and all that stuff, it's very different than it used to be. It's very different, isn't it? That people be seen on YouTube and TikTok and all that sort of stuff nowadays, isn't it? It's all very, very different. Oh, yeah. Now, um, you guys, as I said, you, you honed your material, your, your style and everything like that. And you were often called to go and play with, with bigger bands across Canada as well, weren't you? And, and over the years, you did like The Who and The Stones and The Bee Gees and Rod Stewart and things like that you guys went and played for. I mean, have you got any fun anecdotes or memories from playing in before those sorts of guys? Yeah, I've got, a, there's a bunch of weird stories, weird things that happened to us. Um, I mean, it was just a... Back in those those days, you you're just you got one song that maybe people know, and you're opening from the Who or the Bee Gees or saying, and they're pretty much isolated. They're off on their own doing their thing, and you're just lucky to be on the same on the same stage with them, standing next to their amps and stuff. You know, it's just a the the jump from going from clubs to doing that to a real actual concert type environment is, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of a shock. It's kind of a, it's a whole different kind of a surreal environment, but yeah, for those early days, you, you don't get a chance to, to mingle or hang. Some of the, some of the guys would come up and say, Hey, heard your new song. Good luck to you. That kind of stuff. You know, they would be supported and, and the rest, a, a, a lot of bands, they just, you never see him or talk to him or anything. Oh, that's a shame. But what about the audience then? I mean, obviously you're playing for an audience that are there to see the Who, the Bee Gees, Rod Stewart, whatever. Um, what sort of reaction were you getting from the crowds? 
Well, it's it, the a lot of times you feel like you're the opportunity for a lot of people to go use the toilet. You know, finally you get around to playing the song that they kind of recognize. We're starting to get a feel for what you do, and and uh, then they kind of wake up and realize, oh yeah, it's these guys. And it takes a while. I mean, that's the for us. It was actually compared to a lot of bands that I'd met along the way. It was pretty fast that conversion between kind of just uh, knowing, having people know one song, and then kind of moving up to they buy the record and get into the deeper cuts, and and pretty soon they start recognizing more of the and the, and that's where you you go from opening for somebody to maybe. Headlining a small venue or playing a theater or something like that. So it's just that stepping stone kind of the process. Uh, they, they can build along the way. But for us, it was, it was uh, I mean, some bands work it for years and it takes them two or three records to get to a certain level where they can kind of be more independent doing their own shows and stuff. But it, for us, it was, it was pretty fast. One record and headlining some theaters and things and you mentioned right. just one record and that one record obviously dreamboat annie it's a incredible record even today i mean you're looking back nearly 50 years aren't you from when that was was released was it 1975 yeah 75 yes five and six yeah yeah incredible stuff now take me back to the recording studio because obviously you'd work the music you played it a lot you'd, you'd, you'd honed your skills as a band and everything together but you're in the studio you're putting it together i mean what are your memories from those recording sessions well, um, I was the new kid on the block. I mean, I had, I had no experience at all. Uh, just, I mean, horse and rail with a little reel to reel recorder in my bedroom and, and, uh, my friends that I played with, uh, on the garage, maybe. So the first time in the studio for me was with art and, uh, they just, I, I just came in and sat down at their kit that they had in the studio and, uh, we sort of worked. I, I only played two songs on that first record. There was a bunch of different drummers. And so they just sort of ran their ideas for the arrangement. So I just uh, kind of, you know, took a deep breath and swallowed a couple of times. And I'm, I'm going in, you know, whatever, wherever it takes me. Uh, it was just, I was just a greenie. I mean, I had no idea what the heck I was going to do. Because I had such little experience. I mean, I just, uh, I, I was just hoping that, Whatever I did worked out, and they, they liked it. And so, uh, yeah. I mean, from then on, I was I was sort of I was sort of on the outskirts. I was on the on the fringe, sort of. I mean, I just sort of hung back, and wherever they went, I was just kind of tagging along. It seemed nice for a while, but but the second record, things had changed a lot, and felt like more like a real member of the band. And what was the, can you remember what the kind of expectations were in terms of the band? I mean, obviously you've got that record down and the, the music on there is fantastic. What, what were the expectations? Did you expect it to go as big as it did? Well, the, um, the whole setup that we had going, we, we um, recorded uh, at a studio that was owned by the record company. And the record company was owned by, uh, I don't know if Steve mentioned this, they were a couple of guys that had a painting business. Okay. They made paints or they painted, used the stuff with I don't, they had a company and for a side just a side thing they had a, a a studio in vancouver and they also had this record company 
real small. And so uh, I think in their view, we were their best shot at doing something. They had some other bands that they had come through and they'd work with them and stuff. But so from their, their perspective, they really uh, tried their darndest to uh, get us exposure and set us up with openings and in some airplay and all that. And, and we got to a point with them that we sort of outdrew them. I think everybody knew it. They knew it. Our manager knew it. The producer knew it. And that and a lot changed at that point. But, but initially it was all those guys and, and yeah, kind of their effort and the focus that, uh, really gave them some jump. And did it feel a bit like a whirlwind? Because obviously the record came out and at that time you, you were only young and, it did well across Canada. Then all of a sudden you, you're reaching into America and then it's selling across America. Did it feel like you're in a, in a whirlwind? Did it feel like it was all just taking off so quickly? Definitely. I mean, it, it, um, we had dates, uh, in clubs that we had to finish up and it was very weird to go back to clubs and, and finish those gigs, Seattle area, when we played some place in Montana and Portland, Oregon, up in Vancouver. And so we had some things we had to, to some clubs to play but we were also doing opening gigs with a lot of big bands and being seen by a lot of people and then we started to get some airplay in the u.s we traveled all over canada with a band called nick more wine and it seemed like we did 30 or so dates in vancouver i mean hockey re- arenas and it was a real adventure but after that tour we, we were starting to slowly play more and more in the u.s and then we just ended up being down in the U.S. mainly and opening for everybody. We played with everybody back then. And we would go out for weeks at a time with the Doobie Brothers and Jefferson Starship. I mean, there were just a bunch of bands that we played with and, and, uh, and doing some headlining on our own smaller places along the way. So, yeah, it was, I mean, it was very quick. But uh, moving on, um, the contract dispute with Mushroom Records, um, what, what what's your memories of all that? Because the, the court ruled that you did have to provide a second uh, record for them. And didn't you have to get into the studio and, and kind of re-record and mix and edit everything within a, a really short space of time. And you had a guard there to make sure that nothing untoward was happening. It all sounds a bit crazy from the outside. So what's your, what's your recollections of all that? Uh, well, I wasn't, it, it wasn't very clear to, to us the exact way that this, this whole giving mushroom, uh, um, one more record was going to happen. We had some tracks that were left over uh, that we had just done along the way. And we also, I think at that point, we'd already signed with another, we were in the process of signing with a, with a much bigger label. And so we were kind of conjuring s- stuff material for, for that, get back in the studio. And so I can't, I mean, it was, it was kind of a mess for a bunch of months. Well, we were trying to settle this, this old contract with Mushroom Records and be on our way to the next label and uh, be prepared for that and then also give Mushroom uh, one more album. Uh, and the songs that ended up on that record, it's just, uh, it's kind of, I can, sometimes I think it just kind of bits and pieces. Uh, I still like them, you know, they're still fun to play. So it wasn't like they were all just... Uh, garbage songs that would have never ever made it on a record had it not been for this weird circumstance uh 
but it's, it was strange. It was a weird kind of a, okay, we'll give you one record here. Here's some, okay, we'll put this on and you can have this one. Oh, but it was a strange thing when it worked out. And we don't know if we can call a magazine our second album or our third album because they were so close. I think maybe it's in Canada, the magazine was the second album in the U.S. It was the third. I, it doesn't really matter, but it was kind of confusing for us to satisfy both of those responsibilities. And is it true about the, the, the sessions itself? Was it just a matter of what, three or four days where you guys were in the studio and the producers were in the studio trying to get it all down and, and like get it done and dusted in a way as quick as you could? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was, um, I think we, I think Devil Delight, I think we've been playing that song. And uh, that was, that was a, I, I still like the song. We still do it. Uh, Ended up being on magazine, and uh, I wish we could have recorded it a little differently. But like you say, it was uh, we were sort of up against, up against the clock a little bit on that, and so we yeah we had to just get in there and finish her up, you know, slap her on the on the turntable and uh, get you know get it in the stores kind of a thing, so we could move on. Yeah, because uh, it was I mean there was a lot of time issues with us trying to deliver another record that we could do a kind of a national U.S. Uh, thing, just a proper kind of a setup for a release and all that. And we, and we had some really good, I mean, Darth, we had some really good stuff for that record yeah. uh, in mind. So it worked out kind of strange, but. So how did it work? Obviously, you mentioned that they came out really close together and Little Queen, obviously, was another big success for you guys. So did you have kind of music in mind or already recorded that you were going to say, look, we're keeping this one for this record company? And then it was like, well, we've got a few songs we need to find to put together a record for this company. Was it like that? Yeah, sort of. I mean, as as far as I can recall, it wasn't like, um, I mean, they, I don't think they, they, I'm talking about the, the guys involved with the label and in Vancouver, yeah. they didn't really um, scrutinize. As far as I can remember, they didn't, you know, listen to what we didn't sit down with a big tape player and play all the songs we'd been working on. And they they had an opportunity to select which ones they wanted. I don't think it was. I, I don't recall exactly how it how it broke down. I mean, as far as what record. Uh, you know, how we determine what song was going to be on what album. Um, I, I, I always kind of thought of it as a selections, some songs that maybe we wouldn't have included, just sort of side songs that uh, weren't like first picks for our next record that we had already so- worked on, sort of ready to go. They probably wish that they could have had more input. Um, I don't know. I mean, I never had a chance to talk to those guys to see how they felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they were just happy to get that second record from from you guys anyway, under the hard label and everything. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned uh, Little Queen and you mentioned Barracuda as well. I mean, it is an absolute classic anthem. Everybody knows it, of course. I mean, you're a co-writer on that track as well. So talk to me about how that song came together. What's your memories from, from that one all being pulled together? Well, that was... Um, that was just just a thing that 
Roger Fisher and, and I would, uh, we would go down to the hall. I, I just get tired of sitting around my hotel room. So we'd go down there and as soon as the, the crew got our stuff set up, we'd start banging away and grinding tar cords and, you know, just having some fun, getting loose. And, and that was just a little jam idea that we just sort of mess around with. And I can't remember if it was uh, Mike Fisher or if it was me or I used to have a tape recorder with me and I record bit, little bits and pieces and, and, uh, it got suggested by somebody that we record that thing and give it to Anna and Nancy and, and see, see what they could do with it. Cause it, you know, everybody seemed to like it. It, it was here what we were doing. So that's, that's how it st- sort of started. We, we sort of got to a point to where there was a dispute over what actual songwriting is. I'm, being a drummer, it's not like I would sit behind the piano and bang out a bunch of chords and go, hey, check this out. You know, like Tin Pan Alley or something, which is the way I always kind of... Uh, that sort of old school, the rules that, that apply from, I mean, publish, old publishing rule... Uh, in a lot of ways in rock, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Those rules just don't make sense because ideas can come from a, from a lot of places. Yeah. And it's hard to, I mean, it, it, there's been a lot of feuding that, that has come from somebody saying, Hey, well, that was my idea or that, you know, some roadie saying, no, man, I told you, I told you that phrase. They, they, they say something just horsing around and somebody ends up using it in a song or want to be a songwriter. I mean, that's, I know it sounds weird, but that's, uh, where do you draw the line as far as rock is concerned? For a lot, I mean, it's just a lot of, a lot of ideas come from a lot of different places. And I, and I know that some of it is just, it's hard to justify, but other things are pretty, pretty obvious that if, if, this idea hadn't have been expressed or this, if this thing hadn't been done in a certain way, the song would not have originated. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have existed. So uh, you got to, you know, at that point, you have to say, well, that, well, see, in a way, I guess that's songwriting. The song wouldn't have existed without that idea or without that thing, whatever it was. Um, so that was, that was my sort of my argument that I used, uh, that everybody agreed. I mean, it was just, uh, Raj and I, you know, would jam on that and just kind of automatically do things. And we did that a lot or we would just automatically do our parts and, you know, talk about things maybe, or just, uh, they were just listening to each other. They would just work their, themselves out a uh, little things, patterns, bits and pieces. I mean, is that songwriting or is that arranging? That's, that's the conflict. And that's the, in a rock band, I mean, I think that kind of stuff happens a lot. I don't know, unless, uh, unless a band has an agreement, this, the singer's the lyricist does the melody and the guitar player does the chord jam. Unless that's established and there's an agreement or some, some kind of a thing like that. I think it's kind of, um, sort of open season to to negotiate or however you want to put it on on how that works still very gray area i don't know how the laws rules have changed over time because it's not 
the same world now as it was yeah. in the 1930s or 20s or whatever. <laughs> but I suppose of, of any hard song to have your songwriting credit for, that's not a bad one, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. I was, I was uh, if I was going to uh, stick up for myself, I always felt, I have felt always that it was a good one to do an odd. Yeah, 100%. And in terms of, of playing with heart then, I mean, what's your favorite heart song to drum to? I mean, it might not necessarily be your favorite song, but what what's your favorite drum line from a heart song? Well, of course, I like Barracuda, it's, but it's, uh, it's not easy because there's a lot of uh, foot action. There's a lot of double pattern of the bass drum through the whole thing. Is um, For an old timer, we usually do that at the end of the set. It's a lot of work in the, the, the ankle and the, the foot at the end of a, playing the song for 50 years. So it ain't easy, but it's, it's still, I think it, it really is a complete song. I mean, it's a, what you hope a song does, that song does. And there's, there's a couple others that, that are, I mean, I like Mr. Wind. Mr. Wind kind of came from the same Raj and I kind of jamming out the, the kind of the main chunk of the song. I, I think it's, again, a complete song. I think it does. It's got great emotion. It's got great energy. It's got that dynamic. Starts out mellow, gets, gets in your face. Everybody, I think, does really nice, tasty little embellishments. And it's, it's a deep, kind of a deep cut. So it's cool to know that people really have a, gotten deep into the record and, and like that song and really make a point of saying, although they may have mispronounced the, the name of the song, I know what they're saying. I know what they're talking about. Uh, yeah, that's certainly one of my favorite songs. Too. You recorded uh, a, f- a few albums, um, obviously, after that, but by the, the start of the 80s, the music had begun to change, hadn't it? And Private Audition came out and it, it became yours and Steve's last album with the band, didn't it? Yeah. So in terms of the, the sound itself, was that something that was being driven by, by Anna and Nancy? Yes. There, there had been some, uh, there had been some kind of, uh, after all this time, I still haven't figured out a slick, casual way to get into it. Uh, just some, some disagreements, bottom line, I guess. Just uh, so an evolution of, uh, of attitude and direction that um, I didn't feel was very positive. I don't think I was alone, but I kind of have a big mouth sometimes. Uh, And uh, so I generally, I guess, expected more from us on on that, on that, that last, where that record was by the audition. It just, uh, there was just some, difference of opinions and uh so it was it was not easy i mean i i I think there's some some pretty good stuff on there but it just uh i've always the idea of growing and especially especially in the studio where you uh people are excited to see where you're going to go next Mm -hmm. if you um get a little too uh I don't know if self-indulgent is the right. Yeah, I mean, the music is totally self-indulgent. It's so ego-driven and self-indulging. So that's got to be, it's going to be there. But at the same time, 
I think you need to take a look at what is this song? What is this record doing? What is it? Do- is it doing the things that we want it to do? Or is it just totally self-involved, self-indulging, ego-driven, or attitude, I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what kind of stuff? What's, what's driving it? And so I think that that record sort of was given to that other, maybe not as desirable kind of realm and uh, made, it, made it hard to do. And in terms of, of you leaving the band then, um, I think I, I'd heard you said before, there was almost like a vote sort of system thing that happened. But um, what would you have, obviously a lot of things were happening at that time with, as you said, egos and, and disputes and things like that going on, the, the band was evolving and changing. Would you have been happy to stay in the band had that not whole, thi- that whole thing not arisen in terms of you being asked to leave the band? I mean, if that record had it, hadn't evolved the way that it did? Yeah. Um, well... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that had we sort of approached that in a, in a progressive, not progressive, like uh, fusion or something, but I mean, just more of a um, really growing. And, and I, when I say growing, I mean I like I like uh, I don't like take, taking radical chances, but I like stepping out a little bit. I like pushing it a little bit. I like. Um, uh, and I guess you could make an argument for silent ambition having some of those qualities. I, I don't agree with that, but uh, just knowing that you're satisfied and that you really think that, that the public would be satisfied too, that, that everybody really feels strong, like it, it just it seems right. And it's, it's, it's weird to say, but I think a lot of times you know what it is. Like whether you do a certain song and whether it does end up selling in the pockets or not, you feel like the people, if they don't buy this, they're fools. You know, like maybe you feel that strong about what you what you're doing. That can that can happen. And that's 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 what you it seems like what you should be shooting for. I think had we been more aggressive in that way, I mean really feeling like we're Man, we're coming up with some great stuff here. We're all feeling really satisfied. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, that would have changed a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, how did you feel? Obviously, you've been in the band, what, about seven years or so at this point, and you've been through the highs. You've, you've released so many fantastic albums, great music. You've, you've told the world, you've done this, that, and the other. So, how did you feel having left the band, having been removed from the band? I mean, what, were you optimistic were you desolate i mean what, what were you feeling inside kind of it was a little bit of a yeah i mean it was a kind of weird shocking sort of in a way um now what am i going to do sort of a thing uh started playing with some some friends around town and and uh but i ended up playing with a bunch of other bands we had records out and stuff. I played with Barry Goudreau from Boston, playing with Richard Marks. I played with a band called Alias, which was Steve Fossman and Roger Fisher. They were all really good bands. So I, I had a chance to, to get out and play with, with a bunch of different people and, and stay kind of on a, in a, on a certain level. Yeah. 
Uh, you mentioned Orion the Hunter there. I was going to bring that up actually because I spoke to Barry Goodrow recently as well, and obviously oh, well, it was it was Barry and and Brad Delp on there, and, and Brad incredible voice, and we all know how fantastic he was. I mean, what was it like working with those two guys? Because obviously they'd come off the back of of Boston and everything that they'd been through as well, and you've been through all this with Hart. So you guys teaming up together. I mean, what was that like? Oh, it was great. It was great. It was a fun band. Uh, kind of a different a different. Uh, style of music um different recording environment it was different in so many ways but it was yeah it was a lot of fun great guys uh i love boston we we did a bunch of dates together with boston when they first i mean their album did been out for a while and i mean people just just loved them only every night that they played i'd go out and watch it so i loved the band and uh so uh the guy that uh set me up was was from CBS or one of the offshoot labels from CBS knew that I wasn't playing with Hart anymore. So, and and since I knew Barry a little bit from from us doing gigs together, well, it's, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And uh, another sticky thing I asked you about is um, uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I spoke with Steve again about this, and he was he was obviously delighted to to get the nod that and to find out that you guys have been inducted and everything like that. But uh, it was uh, a funny reaction after that when you, you realized that you then got to get together and all that sort of stuff that follows. So what was your initial reaction then when you first found out that you guys' heart were going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, I, I wondered, gee, what is that going to be like? You know, uh, I I was kind of skeptical. I, I didn't know. Um, really, if I wanted to get involved, I thought it would be a really cool thing to be great honor and all that. But, uh, as far as coming together and we, we hadn't spoken. I think I went and saw Anna Nitz doing, a uh, an unplugged kind of full in Seattle. When we chatted, we went backstage after this was years after I left the day. Uh, we chatted. Well, it was fine. Yeah, I, mean, I, I always got along with Anne. Well, I mean, she's always been funded by the woman. But, you know, things happen and then you hear people talking and you just know what's going on and a bunch of years go by. So I didn't know what was going to happen with it. And I was, I was a little bit, uh, then I heard some things about the way it was going to be put together, what we were going to do, the guys I'm talking about, um, the idea was to have us play crazy on one and to have their current line of the guys play more cool. And so that will sit very well with me, but I didn't want to make, I didn't, it wasn't a big deal to me to make kind of a thing out of it, but the whole, I just, I don't know, for some reason, the vibe when we rehearsed because we hadn't played crazy on you together for decades. Mm -hmm. Uh, just the, the vibe around the, the rehearsal was kind of weird. And, uh, we didn't, we didn't hang it all together. We didn't talk really. Uh, we didn't sit, sit at the same table. It was weird. And the, it's personal opinion. I thought that the way that their cooter sounded was, was very odd. Just did not sound. It, it sounded. Am I? That's all. I didn't quite get 
what they were trying to say, what they were trying to prove, if anything. I didn't take it very well. So it was, so I was very kind of, I mean, it was kind of surreal. I was torn between, uh, my son got to be there. So that was very cool to have, be able to be part of that. Uh, but just the, such a, such a great thing to happen to us. And then to have the feeling of the environment of the band just being messed up. And uh, I've talked to so many other bandmates, uh, friends from other bands, uh, about what, what, what happens between guys who put great music out who make a bunch of money, you know, all your dreams have come true and, and you, you can't, you end up with this hatred of, of your, your bandmates. You, you can't, so you can't, I mean, I've seen guys on stage and maybe we have the same kind of feeling where they can't, they don't want to be breathing in the same air as their former bandmates. No, it's strange. I don't know. Somebody should write a book about that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's a very common occurrence, isn't it? But uh, moving yeah. on to now then, I mean, how by how you and Steve Foss and you, you, you started this band maybe what, a decade or so ago now, maybe a little longer than that perhaps, but uh, it's, it's where you continue to play the classic music of heart, the, the rock stuff, really, the, the good stuff. Um, so, so how did that come about? Whose decision was that? Did you just kind of get your heads together and say, let's do this? Well, Stephen Summer, uh, they started by doing uh, doing gigs, just the two of them. And they got to a point, I guess, Steve just gave me a call and, yeah, you know, I, I heard Summer and, um, yeah, I mean, there was no surprises there. I, I knew that it could really be fun to do. And we found some really great people to play with us. Uh, we do a great job of representing the song proper and... Um, and I don't, I, I'm not some, I like nostalgia. I, I, most of the songs that I bought on my little, my cell phone that I listened to, like iPod, it's, you know, it's classic rock. It's old stuff. So I do, I mean, I, I, I enjoy going and seeing classic bands. If they do a, a really good job of delivering what you are used to, what you heard, what you grew up listening to, whatever it is. If you can pull that off and, and do a really nice job of it, uh, and that's what we do. I think we represent the songs proper, and uh, it's not note for note, but you got to you know stay loose with your, your bits and pieces. But you go away, I think you go away satisfied. In terms of the, the the name itself, did you ever get any kickback from from Anon Anti or anything like that with it be, being called Heart by Heart? No, no, I I don't. Think. I mean, I've never heard anybody ever say anything. Okay, well, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you for this last what, hour or so. Loved hearing your stories, and it's fantastic to to see and hear that you're still out on the road with with Steve and, and putting on brilliant performances and playing the music that people want to hear, which is fantastic as well. So, thank you so much for joining us here on Vintage Rock Pod. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. There you go, the brilliant Mike DeRosia there. I hope you enjoyed that. And as I said before the interview, hear another side of the story from his bandmate Steve Foss. And I interviewed Steve on episode 21 of VRP Rocks. 
So that's it for me and this week's episode then. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app, whatever it is you use. You make sure you get all the episodes. They drop every single Monday. Loads more great guests and brilliant stories to come over the next few weeks. If you can as well, please leave a five-star review for VRP Rocks on the podcast app that you use. It makes a big difference. It really does. Check out VRP Rocks on YouTube. The channel's growing all the time. Give us a like or a follow on social media channels as well. Again, just search for VRP Rocks anywhere and you'll get a big slice of it. A big thanks to all of you who interact with me every single week I love to hear from you all but until next week's show then take care it's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.